Hey, CNC family and, uh, and uh, listeners of our CNC podcast. Uh, this is Pastor Stephen, and uh, we're diving into another uh, week studying Ecclesiastes uh, in this series called A Man's Search for Meaning. And um, so I just wanted to remind you why Ecclesiastes and, and, and maybe why so much detail and why so repetitive and, and, um, and just kind of touch on that a little bit. So remember, we're, we're in Ecclesiastes because this whole um, shelter in place, COVID-19 scare, um, just kind of really one thing that really came to the surface as we were thinking about that in the early weeks was that, um, that really the only certainty is Him. And uh, and and that we need him in these in these just really strange times, um, and 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 then you know I was thinking about the first few weeks of this, and it just it even as I'm teaching some of the some of the points and thoughts, they feel a little redundant even to me, um, and I wondered if you felt the same, and I just wanted to point out we've just been going verse by verse through this book, and. Um, if the lessons feel a bit redundant, it is only because uh, all of Solomon's experiments, all of his searches for meaning, everything he tested and experimented with, uh, seemed to say the same thing. And God, direct, by the Holy Spirit, directed uh, this to end up in what we call the canon of Scripture uh, that's been handed down from century to century generation to generation to to learn about who God is and the promises that he's made um, and and to pass the good news of the gospel the story of God um, on down and this was a part of it and so each part of it and each lesson repetitive or not um, God felt it was important to be delivered in exactly the way that it is for us to learn from and so um, so we're doing this study on Ecclesiastes because, the book in particular, because in, in light of our times, and this book in particular is, uh, was written by someone who was feeling like the times were very dark and uncertain and really empty and kind of calling into question all meaning in life. And, and this COVID-19 stuff has been a little bit like that for some of us. We've been seeing that and feeling like it's a sign of the times, so to speak. And so we're studying Ecclesiastes. We'll be finishing chapter 2 um, in this study. Uh, verses 18 to 26. So as you're going in your Bibles or getting getting your phones open, and I hope you do that, even if you're not listening to this live or when it's first released, I hope you, you follow along and study on your own. Um, but while you're going there, um, I, I don't know if you, uh, you all are Instagram users, but uh, I, I got an Instagram to keep up with students when I was in student ministry and uh, and quickly found that it's a lot of fun to kind of <laughs> To follow um, other people's lives through pictures, and uh, and so I, I follow a bunch of people on there. Um, one thing uh, I follow a lot of athletes, and um, I don't necessarily follow all the athletes that I see uh, posts from, but things get uh, th- you read about the Instagram hotness and things that uh, people are are that are trending and people are following. And I've come across a lot of neat things that have helped me learn. And I wanted to share this with you. During the, you, this, is, this is maybe not going to make sense in the beginning, but it will make a lot of sense at the end. Um, it's all going to tie together. During the summer of 2019, uh, Tom Brady, 
uh, who was the quarterback of the New England Patriots. He's now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But with the New England Patriots, he won six Super Bowls. And he had just won his sixth NFL Super Bowl in February 2019. That summer, I think it was in June, he posted a picture to Instagram with all six of his Super Bowl rings displayed. And the caption of that picture read, Do you know which one's my favorite? The next one. The next one. Six Super Bowl rings. He's been to eight Super Bowls. He's won six. And he posts these ornately jeweled, um, fantastically valuable rings of accomplishment. And he says, which one's my favorite? The next one. That sentiment perfectly summarizes the teaching of the book of Ecclesiastes. See, King Solomon wrote wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and his desire for the quote-unquote next one, forms the basis of his experiment and the results within his writing. Looking for meaning in life and having unlimited resources, Solomon set out to try it all and see where meaning comes from. What he ultimately discovered was that it was all meaningless because it didn't matter how much he had. He wanted more. He wanted the next one. It didn't matter how many women he slept with. He wanted the next one. It didn't matter how much he owned. He wanted the next one. Basically, what Ecclesiastes reveals to us in all of the things that he experimented with, his conclusion is meaningless. There's no meaning here. Maybe I can find it in the next one. See, no matter what he tried or how much of it Solomon tried, he found no meaning. Solomon calls, one of, the, one of the ways he refers to it, or one of the things he calls it, is a chasing after the wind, trying to find meaning and purpose. Uh, commentator Peter Kreft says, uh, commentating on the philosophy of Ecclesiastes, he says, life is like a wild goose chase without a goose. Life is like a wild goose chase without a goose. In other words, you're running around crazy trying to catch a goose that you think is running around crazy and always just out of your reach, but the the goose is not there. You'll get to the end of your life and you'll discover not only did you not catch the goose, but there was never a goose to catch in the first place. And what we learned last week is to make matters worse, the chase eventually ends and you die. So we're all trying to find happiness and then you die. Ecclesiastes is about the phantom unicorn of true happiness and satisfaction apart from God. Happiness and satisfaction are not a phantom unicorn, but happiness and satisfaction apart from God are. And as Solomon recounts his attempts at happiness apart from God, he describes these as things done under the sun. Under the sun. Limited to time and space. Disconnected from the God of the universe who is outside of time and space. Who is beyond the sun, if you will. So Solomon's experiments, the limitations, the dissatisfaction that he's finding within them is because they're under the sun and God is beyond the sun. So he's, he's, he's not finding any happiness or satisfaction because he is without God. See, everything else he tries, everything he tries apart from God is a series of not-its, like consuming alcohol, partying it up, just living the, the high life, so to speak. He does that trying to find meaning. And the, an- the answer is not it. Uh, It's good for a while, but then it would wear off and all he was left with was a hangover and curiosity about why he drove a chariot into his living room the night before. 
He's, he's talked about romance and sex, pursuing that for meaning. And that, that came back. Not it. He's pursued knowledge and wisdom and understanding, the ability to, to explain and, and understand all kinds of things. And that was not it. He's tried foolishness, living for the moment, living for fun and leisure. TGIF, thank God it's Friday, living for relaxation, not it either. And so he's continuing to work his way down the list. And today, he turns his attention to work. He turns his attention to work. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18. He says, I hated all the things I had toiled or worked for under the sun. There's that phrase again. Because I must leave them to someone who comes after me. So one of my first jobs was at a clothing store in the mall called The Buckle. And it really wasn't a bad job, but like most jobs, the mundane reality of it set in rather quickly. You'd spend all day unpacking clothes, folding clothes, arranging the shelves, greeting customers, checking customers out. And one of the things that just would really drive me mad after a while was you would, you'd fold all these clothes and get them all arranged, and then customers would come in and they'd take hangers and stacks of clothing into a dressing room, clothing that I had neatly folded, neatly hung, neatly set out, neatly arranged by size, and then they would throw most of it on the ground in a pile, try on an item, nope, don't like it, throw it on the pile, and then ultimately just end up buying a couple of items and leaving the rest on the floor, which uh, I pretty much maybe summarize how some of you get dressed in the morning, right? Take it off the shelf, take it off the hanger, try it on, don't like it, throw it on the ground, big mess, your room's always a mess. Uh, and so essentially, my job at the buckle every day was to clean up after the hazards left behind by not being able to decide what to wear. <laughs> um, and it, it, it just, it could really get to you, especially when I was having a long week at school or whatever. Uh, it just really could get, get to you, the grind of work. And that's what it felt like, a grind. Um, making matters worse, I get my first paycheck there, and there's a lot that has already been taken from it. You know what I'm talking about? Have you felt that feeling before? I learned that this was, quote-unquote, Uncle Sam. And for him, apparently, theft is perfectly legal. <laughs> I mean, am I the only one who feels like my social life would have a lot more security if he didn't take so much of my money for so-called social security? Anyway, between Uncle Sam and being required to wear clothes to work that were for sale in our store and paying my bills, I didn't have much money left over for myself. So I was working all the time at something that a lot of times drove me crazy and wore me out, and I had no money, no success, no real fruit to show for it. So it all kind of felt pretty meaningless to me. Can you relate to that? You, can you relate to getting up and going to work day in, day out, working hard, and then really at the end of the day, for all you do, feeling like there's not a ton to show for it? Now Solomon, he didn't have the same problem as you and me. He never ran out of money for himself. He had plenty to show for his work. In fact, he was, he was the Uncle Sam. Well, he was Uncle Solomon. He was the one taxing people. But he still, here, he agrees with you and I. Hard work and toil is meaningless. He says, I came to hate all my hard work. So here's a question. If he never ran out of money, if he, if he didn't have the problem that you and I did, not having anything to show or feeling like not having anything to show for our work, 
Why did he get to the same place that you and I maybe feel like? The reason is connected to his disappointing discovery in our study last week. Do you remember? Dead is dead. Which is to say, no matter how wise or foolish one lives, we all end up the same way. Dead. We said last week, death is the great equalizer of humanity. And so on a related note, as he thinks about all his work in light of his mortality, something occurs to him. I can't take anything with me. I'm gonna, death comes to all people and I can't take anything with me. I spent my whole life building this kingdom, assembling the leadership, building the structures, establishing authority, developing society, but I'm going to die just like everyone else. In life, he has had control, but in the end, he will lose it all and have very little say in what happened to it after, he, after he's gone. See, Solomon was a wise and successful leader. He took care of every little detail and meticulously crafted a kingdom like no other, literally like no other. He was the richest king in all the world, the richest king that has ever lived. The people came from the world over to, to sit at his feet, to see his, his empire. But as soon as he was gone, as soon as he died, just like everyone does, it would be like he never owned it in the first place. It'd be, it'd be like, It'd just be like he's no longer there because he, he wouldn't be. And here's the thing. Dead people have no possessions. Think about this. King Tut and all of the other pharaohs that tried to take it with them. They took toys and trinkets and, and food and stores, drink and all kinds of stuff down into those tombs underneath their pyramids thinking that they would take it with them to the afterlife. And do you know what uh, archaeologists found centuries later, millennia later? When they went into those tombs, they found it there completely undisturbed, rotted and raided, right? If anything was used, it was used because raiders came in and stole it. They had no possessions. They had no control over it. When you die, you lose everything and you own nothing. That's what Solomon, he says, man, all my hard work, all the fruits of my labor, it's just all gone. What's the point? It's just going to go to somebody else. John D. Rockefeller uh, he was the first American billionaire. When he died, you know, there were friends and family, but then there were also uh, writers and reporters and probably some people who were hoping somehow to get in on the spoils of John D. Rockefeller. And uh, said that one person asked his accountant at, at his funeral, or, uh, or maybe in an interview following. Actually, I'm not real clear on that. But somebody asked his accountant, how much did he leave behind? And the accountant just looked at the man incredulously and said, all of it. He left all of it behind. He didn't take any of it with him. Do you, do you get it? And, and the, the point being that when you die, it's the great equalizer, and all of your work and all of the spoils of your work are gone, and they're left to somebody else. It it's all gets left behind. It all gets redistributed. You can't take any of it with you. Jesus uh, told a story teaching that our work and all of its fruits are perishable too. In Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 16, it says, And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? 
I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You see, who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus says this, This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Just as Solomon has been saying, you can be rich in all kinds of things, but if you are not rich in your relationship with God, it's meaningless because it all dies with you. It dies when you die. Now, pay attention. Jesus is not saying that to eat, drink, and be merry, to take it easy and rest, that that, that that is wrong in and of itself. But he says if you are rich toward yourself and not rich in a relationship with God, it's, it it's going to leave you at any point. You're going to leave this earth and all of that's going to get left behind and who will get it then? Pastor Tommy Nelson put it this way. He said, think about it. Somebody will end up with your big, pretty Rolls Royce and spill coffee all over its wood interior. Someone will take your beautiful home, paint it orange, and rent it to a bunch of college freshmen. Your favorite pair of $200 shoes will end up at the Salvation Army. The land that is so precious to you will end up as a trailer park in a number of years. It's the same for the wise man and the fool. You can't take it with you when you're gone. All lives lead to a casket. All lives lead to a casket. Unfortunately, this is true for all of us. No matter how hard you worked for it, in the end, you lose it all, and all you have is a casket, maybe a headstone. The truth is, we don't really own anything. We're just renting. We're renting from the one who owns it all. And what is your rent fee? Your time, your life, and ultimately your worship. See, since everything culminates in eternity... Your work and fruits of your work are either a tool or an idol. They're either, your work and all of its fruits are either tools that you're using to glorify God or they're idols that you're worshiping in place of Him. We are just stewards. We are not owners. God is the owner. We are stewards. And good stewards do everything under their owner. And with, This is in... in in theological terms, this is called worship. What we do with what we've been given is worship. And Solomon's discovery and the lesson for us is to invest our worship in some different real estate because under the sun, we're just renting. But what Jesus is saying is that there is a different kind of real estate that you can have ownership in, and that is in a relationship with God. You can be rich toward God and you'll get a return on your investment. But if you are rich toward yourself, that eventually is going to just go to somebody else. Because there's other renters that come after us. And Solomon knows that. He's none too happy about that either. Verse 19 says, And who knows whether this person, this next renter, will be a wise man or a fool? And yet, 
Fool or wise man, he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. That's meaningless. <laughs> so this is what keeps Solomon up at night. He, he lays there in bed and just thinks, oh, I'm afraid freeloading idiots are going to get all my stuff. He's losing sleep at night, considering that one day he'll be dead and someone else will be using all his stuff. I'm glad for his honesty, because I think we can relate. Maybe you're not laying awake thinking about when you're dead and gone, but have you ever tried to control the succession plan when you leave a department or a job? Like, have you ever left a place, a place that you had leadership, that you had a part in building, and you were going to turn over your work, turn over the fruit of your work to somebody else, and you get wind of who's going to be in charge, or who's going to buy that, or who's going to take that, and it really kind of bugs you? I, I've known people who have sold houses and who have been upset or depressed about what they did with that house. That is exactly what Solomon is up at night worrying about. And we, we do this too. Try not to think just of being worried about when you're gone, but do you ever check back in on your old job or your old house or your old department? and feel frustration as you judge the competency of your successors. I know for me, it's difficult to not look at churches that I've served in in the past and feel like the new person is doing it all wrong. And I'm glad Solomon is honest enough to say, man, I'm so selfish that I lose sleep over someone else using my stuff. I'm so arrogant that I believe no one else is capable of what I did in that place. I'm so controlling that I absolutely hate the idea of anyone else managing this. I'd rather it end then turn it over to someone else. I'm glad he's honest about that because we can relate to that. We're pretty proud of what we've done with our hands. We're pretty proud of our work and the fruit of our work, whatever it is. And we like to imagine ourselves the owners, but we're just renters. The reality is we're just passing through and it's not ours. Psalm 39.6 says, Surely we are all just mere shadows. In vain we rush about, heaping up wealth, without knowing whose it will finally be. Solomon hates the idea that he has no idea who his successor will be and whether or not that person will run his work into the ground or do things with his work that he never would have done. For a modern example of Solomon's worry, consider Walmart. Sam Walton opened the doors to one, to one store in 1962, and by the time he died, 40 million people shopping at his stores every single week with $44 billion in annual sales. And listen, it was not innovation. Like Sam Walton did not invent the cheap uh, product model. Um, it, was not, it, it was not that he was a powerful monopoly undercutting prices of the competition that made Walmart successful in the beginning. He took ideas from five and dime stores that already existed and other stores that were successful. And so he did not innovate and he did not make his money on low quality. In fact, Target and Kmart opened the same year that Walmart did and with similar business models. What made Walmart different was Sam Walton's belief in treating people right. He said... The more I treat people right, the more they will treat me right. 
The more I can give to my employees, to my customers, and to the communities we do business in, the more employees and customers will give back to Walmart. We all work together. That's the secret. And if you hear all that, and you're like, that doesn't sound like the Walmart I know, I'm with you. I think it's safe to say that things changed after Sam Walton died. It's clear that Walmart's philosophy now is whatever beats the competition and fattens the bottom line. In fact, a Forbes writer wrote in 2010, the company once renowned for how it treated its employees and customers has been scandal-ridden for nearly a decade, and each scandal has centered on how poorly they have treated their employees and customers. Since December of 2008, they have faced 73 class action lawsuits related to wage violations. That was written in 2010. So in a year and a half, 73 class action lawsuits related to wage violations. The author goes on to detail a whole bunch of other scandals and publicity nightmares, uh, basically demonstrating how far Walmart had drifted from their founder's dream as they began to ignore the guiding principles that made his work successful in the beginning. And this is what Solomon is afraid of. And if you've read 2 Kings, you know his fears became a reality. Verse 20, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, may do his work with knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all, the, all that he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune or a great evil. This reads almost like a prophecy because as he talks about having to leave all of his toilsome labor to somebody who has not worked for it, this very easily could have been a prophecy about his son Rehoboam. Rehoboam inherited the kingdom from Solomon and promptly lost ten twelfths of it. He inherited twelve cookies and he gave ten of them away and he did not rule for very long. He was, and the problem was, is exactly what Solomon says here. Rehoboam was used to the path of least resistance. He was used, everything was handed to him on a silver platter. And so he, he was going to have to do his own diligent work and toilsome labor to build onto what was handed to him. But since he had not done the work to build this kingdom, since he had not had to labor and suffer and toil for it, he did not apply himself with wisdom. He did not apply himself with skill. And instead, he surrounded himself with yes-men who would just follow whatever his whim and fancy was. And instead of heeding the wise counsel of others that may have contradicted what he wanted, and pretty soon, doing what he wanted with the agreement of all of his yes-men, the kingdom revolted against him, and he lost the kingdom. He didn't have to labor for all that he inherited. There's something important about hard work. There's something important about instilling in your children and understanding for yourself that things not earned are easily disposed of, but things that you work hard for are cherished. Solomon here begins to see some good in work, but it's quickly shrouded over because of what happens when you have to leave it to, some, to someone else. He sees the good of hard work and the character that it forms, but he recognizes that rarely do people treat their work with such care so there's a lesson for us about work. When we treat it with care, 
it can be redemptive. But we must be on our guard that we not simply inherit things and take them for granted. And Solomon is just in despair over what will come after he's gone. He hates his work and despairs over his successes because he knows it will not last. See, there is no lasting fulfillment or satisfaction in it. It's kind of like Henry Ford. Henry Ford was uh, recorded as saying uh, after many successful years for Ford Motor Company, he said, I was much happier when I was a mechanic in the shop. And yet, the mechanic is dreaming of beginning a company to rival mine. I love that. He longs for the simple days of hard work uh, on the journey to his dream. And yet he also recognizes that there, that there is someone else who is doing that hard work now, dreaming of being in his shoes someday. And what this reveals to me is, is, is exactly what Solomon is revealing to us. This is the cycle that we are all in. We love the dream, but we hate having to leave the journey behind. We journey and journey and journey to accomplish the dream, and then we die. We love the success, but we end up in despair that it will fade away in somebody else's hands. It's the goose chase with no goose. Happiness just out of reach. Verse 22 says, What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. <laughs> so what he says, What do I really have to show for all my work? Stress to the max. <laughs> What do I have to show for all my, all my work? Stress to the max. There's a national research group that found 40% of people say that their work is very successful. One-fourth of those people who say their work is very successful also said it was the number one stress in their lives. I want you to hear me on this. Whatever other fruits there are to labor... Labor's primary fruit under the sun is stress. Okay, there's, there's plenty of things that can come from work. Good, bad, and neutral. But the primary fruit, when it's done under the sun, remember, under the sun is apart from God, is stress. We, we see actually the answer to dealing with this stress in our work in Solomon's dad, King David, and we read the Psalms of King David, what you see is, is a man who is no stranger to the stress of work. In fact, much of his writing, he does not hold anything back, expressing his anxiety, his stress, his unrest. And the language that he uses to describe is very dramatic. As it, it just all, You can almost feel and hear the anguish that he has in his work, the, the stress and unrest. And yet, the way that his writing, his psalms often conclude, is in peace and rest. He finds peace and rest in his relationship with God. His relationship with God gives peace and rest and joy to his work. His relationship with God gives him comfort over the strain and stress of his work. But Solomon, that was King David, Solomon here is examining his work under the sun, apart from God. 
outside of a relationship with Him. There is no comfort, no peace, and no rest with work as an idol, with work being worshipped to provide the meaning and purpose that only God can. So now, Solomon, in this passage, for the first time since the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, brings God more overtly into his experiment. God's going to come into, um, into view now for Solomon for the first time since the beginning of the book when he gives his spoiler alert conclusion. Verse 24, A man can do, do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment. Now, this is a pivot point, in, not only in this segment or this chapter, but in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Martin Luther says these verses are the principal conclusion of the book, one that explains everything before and everything after. He's looking, Solomon is looking at life and life's work through God's eyes now. When looking at it through God's eyes, life and its work are no longer meaningless, but instead... They're a gift from the hand of God. Did you see that? They're a gift from the hand of God. Without God, all you will find is emptiness. Because true satisfaction is found in the order that God originally created. And this is how Solomon puts it, to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Did you know that that's the order that God originally created? Eat and drink and find satisfaction in work. To, you know, We read that parable of Jesus earlier, and the man in Jesus' parable says, I will, I will store up all this stuff for myself and take it easy and rest and eat, drink, and be merry. And that's kind of like the American dream, right? You know, work hard, make a lot of money, retire, and live it up. I told you before, there's nothing particularly wrong with that unless it is detached from eternity. And when you're attached to eternity, God gives meaning and purpose to all of your merriment and work. But the original order, God created things this way, that we would make merry and we would find satisfaction in our work. God created Adam and placed him in a garden with an abundance to eat and drink. And with everything beautiful, I mean, when you read about the Garden of Eden, you read of a utopia, you read about a perfect place, right? But do you know what else was in the beginning? God gave Adam work to do in the creation that God placed him in. Okay? So in the beginning there was merriment and work. And then God gave Adam a companion so that together they could enjoy the merriment and the work. And the way that God described that setup, he said, it was all very good. It was all very good. And what, so what we, what we read here in Solomon, and what we know from the beginning, is that pleasure and work, pleasure and work, are both from the hand of God, and both are good gifts. When those things are enjoyed with God, they are fulfilling and satisfying. You're like, pleasure I can see, but work not so much. But that's because for the most part, our work is done apart from God. See, when those things, pleasure or work, are without Him, they are empty and meaningless. Empty and meaningless in different ways. Work is a grind, and pleasure is a, a train wreck. 
really. They're chasing after the wind, a wild goose chase with no goose. So what we're discovering in this book is that sin distorted both pleasure and work. See, going back to the garden, go back to Genesis 3, pleasure became a selfish way to become like God instead of be with God. Pleasure became a selfish way to become like God instead of be with God. Genesis 3, verse 5, for God, this is, the, this is the snake speaking, he says, well, God knows that when you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, pleasure became a selfish way to become like God instead of be with God. It became a way to usurp the need for God. And work became a curse of a broken earth. As God said, because you ate from the tree, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the, return to the ground. You hear the, you hear the curse there. Work is no longer a stewardship enjoyed with the companions of earth, but now it's painful toil. It's thorns and thistles. It's the sweat of your brow. It's a grind now. Pleasure tears us apart from God and work is now a grind. The things that God gave us in the beginning that were full of meaning and purpose and joy and rest are now distorted. And sin separated us from God and from the eternal life that ensured our merriment and good work would go on forever. And the remedy is clear and this is what Solomon says about it in verse 26. It says, To the man who pleases him, the man who pleases God. God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's what Solomon is saying. He's saying, listen, there is a, I, I have discovered the reality of this curse, the reality of the brokenness of earth, that work is now a curse. I've discovered that pleasure is my own selfish means to try and usurp God, and it ends up empty, and now I've discovered that work is a curse when it was really meant to be a gift. And as long as you remain apart from God, that is the life you will live. God will leave the sinner to simply fulfilling the brokenness of earth. The sinner will just keep grinding and keep storing up, and then he will die what does it say? It says he will hand it over to the one who pleases God. What does that mean? That God is going to cheat people out of a good life on earth who don't do exactly as he says and turn it over to people who are his minions? No, 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 no. Solomon is recognizing eternity. He's saying only those who have a relationship with God will go on forever so that their work has meaning, so that the rewards and fruits of, of their labor can go on forever. And if you are not in God, if you're not with God, if you're not... If you don't know God, you'll be separated from God and therefore you'll be separated from all your work and somebody else will inherit the fruits of your labor and they will sustain it and enjoy it for all eternity. So live without God and you'll forever be chasing a goose that isn't there. Live with God and all will be made new. Again, I fast forward to a few thousand years to Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, 19-21 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and rust destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, there's the worship issue. There's the worship issue. God lays out, or Jesus lays out, work is meaningless unless it's done beyond the sun. Work under the sun, it, just, it gets destroyed, it gets stolen, it gets left behind. But work beyond the sun, and it doesn't, it doesn't get destroyed, it lasts forever, it doesn't get stolen, it is secured in God. And what it all boils down to is your worship. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you put your worth and work is where your heart will also be. So if your worth and work, if your heart is here on earth, it will be destroyed and stolen. In heaven, it will be secure and restored to you for eternity. So as we close, I want to just ask you to think about what is, what it, what is it that you're grinding away at? What is it that you're working and working and working and working? What, your nest egg, your retirement, your goals, your dreams, that's all well and good. But is that work that you're doing under the sun or are you doing it beyond the sun in the Son of God? Anything under the sun, you can't take it with you. You're going to have to leave it behind. It's, it's, going, to, it's going to be left to someone else and it may be, may be a freeloading idiot. Who knows? The only way to ensure that all that you're doing, all that you're toiling at, laboring at on this earth has meaning and purpose, that it could be fulfilling uh, to your life, that it could carry on for all of eternity, is in a relationship with God. And so Jesus' conclusion of that passage in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, is seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all the other things will be added to you. That's what makes work meaningful is that when your work is first of all above and above everything else about his kingdom. What you don't want to do is end up like Tom Brady. Remember that, remember that quote from the Instagram account? He actually first said that in an interview many years earlier after he had won three Super Bowls. And he followed up in that interview saying, why do I always need another one? Why am I always looking to go on to the next thing? Why is it never enough? I don't know. If you figure it out, maybe you could tell me. That is the curse of the one who's living apart from God, gathering and storing up wealth only to hand it over to those who please God and live with Him in eternity. That's the emptiness. I pray that you would not get caught in this wild goose chase of life, but that you would seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness so that all the other things would be added to you and you would have treasure in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.